Hello, Gold Avenue Church family and friends. This is Pastor Jalisa. Um, and here we are, whatever time of day it is or where you are, here we are together in spirit. And we're continuing on in our sermon series called The Blessed Hope. Throughout this series, the Lord has been stirring us up to be watchful in the times that we live in and to be those who anticipate and prepare for the return of our King. Last week, we looked at the parable of the wise and foolish servants from Matthew 24 and Jesus' stern warning and strong encouragement to live as those who are ready for his return by being faithful and obedient while we wait. Today, we're going to keep moving through the same discourse that Jesus gave at the end of Matthew 24 and move right over into Matthew 25 to look more at what it looks like to live wisely in this age. And so today we're going to be reading from Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. But before we dig in, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and we thank you that you don't change and that your word is always true. Lord, we ask that you would um, send your spirit, Holy Spirit, pour out on each one of us. Lord, would you fill us afresh? Pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word and that you would anoint the hearing of your word. And Lord, we pray that through it, we would be strengthened to be those who live lives of awareness and lives of preparation for your glorious return. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So from Matthew chapter 25, Verses 1 to 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. But the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil! Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember 
my freshman year of college at what is now called Dort University. I was a journalism major at the time, and I was taking one of the most difficult courses of my young life. I thought it was so hard, and it was under a professor named Dr. Elgersma. All reports of Elgersma were that he expected a lot out of his students, and that his bar of standard was excruciatingly high. The course was called, very simply, Writing 101. It was a crash course, an Olympic gauntlet introduction into college-level writing. Elgersma would walk us through proper grammar and formatting and academic style, and every week we were required to turn in a five-page paper on a topic of his choice. There were clear deadlines as to when we needed to have our research completed, our outlines completed, and our drafts completed. Every week there would come a day where Elgersma would meet each student at the door of his classroom. Before you even made it to the door, you could hear him yelling down the hallway, Drafts! Drafts! Let me see your drafts! On draft day, your draft was your ticket into the classroom. If you had it in hand, Dr. Augersma would let you into the classroom. That whole class period would be spent editing. We'd pass papers around and read and edit together. Elgersma himself would help with our questions, and by the end of it all, we were basically guaranteed a great paper and a better-than-passing grade. But, if you showed up on draft day, and you didn't have a draft, you were not allowed into the classroom. No edits, no help. You couldn't run home for your computer or to the printer for a copy. If you weren't ready, the door closed. And you missed out. Algersman's point was simple. Always be prepared. And man, did it feel awful to show up unprepared. In our parable for this message, all ten of the virgins or maidens know that a wedding would soon take place. They know that they need to be prepared. A study of ancient Jewish marriage tradition tells us that this parable takes place between phases two and three of a three-phase traditional wedding. The first phase was engagement. This means that at the time of our story, a formal agreement had already been made between the father of the groom and the father of the bride. Later, phase two was a betrothal. There has already been a ceremony where mutual promises, much like our vows, had been exchanged between the groom and the bride and their families. After phase two had been completed, the groom would have gone back home to his parents' household in order to build a room connected to that house for he and his bride to live in. In other words... The groom had gone to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. That sounds familiar. Only after that room had been prepared would phase three take place. And in phase three, after the couple's home was ready, the groom would come for his bride. Now, obviously, there were no phones or Internet connections. The groom couldn't call ahead or send an email to say, hey, I'm coming. So his arrival would be both anticipated and yet unexpected. 
As soon as the bride and her friends and family heard that the groom was on his way, whether day or night, an established bridal party, typically of ten young women, would go out to meet the groom with their ten lamps or torches. This party would join with the groom in a festive procession and escort him to the banquet hall, where his bride would be ready and waiting and there would be an official wedding and a grand celebration for all. This is the same image we saw last week when we talked about how when an official or dignitary would come to visit a town, a group of representatives from that town would go and meet that official down the road and escort him back into the town. The bridal party would meet the groom down the road and escort him to the grand wedding feast. And if you were part of that bridal party, you would know it. You probably didn't get invited through some Pinteresty cute be my bridesmaid card or ordeal like we do today, but your role in this wedding was clear. And in the year following phase two, if you were a good bridesmaid, you woke up every day wondering how that groom was doing, how the room was coming along. You went to bed every night wondering if today, if tonight might be the day of the wedding. You'd keep your best clothes clean and ready. You'd make sure that your lamp was ready and you'd keep an extra jar of oil around just in case the groom arrived at night. But in our parable, not every member of this bridal party has taken her role seriously. We read in verse 6 that at midnight, in the middle of the night, the cry comes out, The place is finally ready. The groom is coming for his bride. All of the maidens are deep asleep. They'd been waiting for this groom for a long time. All ten of them rise from their beds and put on their best clothes. All ten of them assemble together with their torches lit. All ten of them appear ready to join in the grand entrance of the groom and the celebration to follow. But only five of them were prepared for him to come at night. Only five of them have tucked extra jars of oil into their pockets. Only five of them have enough oil to keep their torches lit until they arrive at the banquet. So as they begin to head down the road towards the groom, the five unprepared begin to question the five prepared maidens. Hey, did you pack any extra oil? Can I have some? I don't think I have enough. Did you pack enough for me too? The responses are resounding. No. And so the five unprepared split off and head for the oil merchants in the middle of the night, hoping to find what they already should have had. By the time the five unprepared are able to find oil and trim their lamps, they realize that they're too late. The groom has already arrived and the procession to the banquet has already taken place. So they run straight to the hall. They catch their breath and smooth their clothes and they bang on the door, hoping to be let in. The groom comes to the door. He opens it a crack, and the five can hear the music and the dancing. They can smell the food and feel the warm glow of the candlelight. But the groom looks at them sadly, and he sees that they have had extensive time to prepare, but that they were not ready for his arrival. So he replies, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. And he closes the door leaving them alone in the dark. 
just as Dr. Elgersma taught me in Writing 101. There are consequences for not being prepared. But Jesus is talking about much bigger consequences than a bad grade or a missed wedding. This parable comes on the heels of Jesus' sermon on signs of the end time, signs of the time of his return. It follows last week's parable where preparedness through obedience was highlighted. And in this parable, oil seems to be a requirement for preparedness. What's the point of oil? Why is there so much emphasis on it? In biblical times, oil refers to olive oil. Olive oil was used for food. It was used to be burned for light. We read in Exodus 27 that the lamps of the temple were lit by olive oil and that Aaron, the priest, and his sons were ordered to never let the lamps in the temple of the Lord burn out. Oil was poured over priests when they were consecrated. Oil was used as a skin and hair ointment. It was used for ceremonial healing. The prophets, priests, and kings of Israel were anointed with oil before beginning to serve in their role. Oil represents the touch of God himself. Oil represents the presence of his Holy Spirit. When the prophet Samuel anointed King David with oil in 1 Samuel 16, 13, we read that when Samuel poured out that horn of oil over David's head, that the spirit of the Lord came over him in power. Later in the New Testament, when Jesus himself begins his ministry in Luke 4, Jesus references the prophet Isaiah when he says, The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Did you catch it? The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me for these purposes. Oil represents the presence of God's Holy Spirit for healing, for consecrating, for empowered purpose. So when Jesus, who identified himself as the bridegroom and his holy people as his bride, tells us in John fourteen three that he has gone to his father's house to prepare a place for us. When this bridegroom, when Jesus returns for his bride at an unexpected hour, His expectation for us is that we carry with us enough oil to last through the night. His expectation is that we are full of his Holy Spirit. It's not enough to hold a lamp. We have to keep refilling it with oil. All of this begs the question, how do we keep our lamps burning? What does that mean? How do we stay full of the Holy Spirit? To be clear here, we're not talking about the point of conversion or the moment we receive the Holy Spirit and are born again into the kingdom of God. What we're talking about is repeated, fresh filling of the Spirit that we see poured out on King David when he become, when he became the king, on Jesus when he began his ministry, on Peter, Paul, Stephen, and countless believers in Acts as they proclaimed the gospel and on others throughout scripture who were already the Lord's, but who continued to receive his Holy Spirit. Paul addresses this persistent filling in Ephesians 5, where he says, Be careful, then, how you live, 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. It's clear from Paul's description that the fruit of a life full of the Holy Spirit is joy. It's encouragement and strength drawn from the word of the Lord. It's sweet unity and koinony of fellowship in the body of Christ. It's welcoming the gifts of the Spirit. It's a life of relationship with and profound worship of our Lord. It's unceasing thankfulness, even in evil days. It's a life of purpose, wisely making the most out of every opportunity. All because we know that our God reigns, that he's good, and that our groom is coming. As I was digging into this concept of being persistently filled with the Spirit, it struck me that the cost for filling seems to be submission to the Lordship of God coupled with faith in who he is and what he says he'll do. Prophets surrendered their own voices and were anointed. They did so with faith that God would give his words. Priests surrendered their own ideas and did so with faith that God would give his wisdom and righteousness, and then they were anointed. Kings surrendered their own plans for glory And they were anointed, and they did so with faith that God would lead, provide, and that his glory was better than any that they could seek out. In Acts, the church and her leaders surrendered their very lives. They put their faith in Jesus and in the gospel. And the Spirit came on them with power to heal, to set free, to preach, to teach, to sustain under pressure, and to advance the kingdom of God. They devoted themselves to prayer, to studying the word, to worship, and to fellowship. They persistently filled their spirits and their lives with God himself. And because of it, God's spirit sustained and advanced his church through insurmountable persecution and pressure. To be full of the spirit of God is to live a life of divine exchange. To persistently empty one of oneself to be filled by the Spirit of God. To wake up every day and go to bed every night expecting for it to be the wedding day and to live accordingly. Friends, it's been a hard season, 2020. Our lamps may yet be lit, but are they starting to dim? Do we have extra oil in the shelves of our spirits? Are we in the habit of refilling them when they're empty? In Luke 11, after the disciples had asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, and after he'd given them the Lord's Prayer, he said, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. 
For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened to. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And then in John three thirty four, it says that the Spirit of God is given without limit or measure. How do we live lives full of the Spirit of God? We keep asking. We take on a posture of surrendered dependence. And we keep coming in faith with our hands wide open in the fountain of his presence and his word. And we ask for his continued filling. We fill our lives with places and spaces where he loves to dwell. We keep asking, and he'll keep giving, without limit or measure. We do not know the day or the hour in which our groom will return. But friends, we do know that if we keep our lamps burning and our jars full, that we will be ready to be caught up into the clouds with our Jesus And to usher him into the banquet hall in the age to come. Gold Avenue Church. Let's be ready for that glorious day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your relentless love for your bride. Lord, no groom... (laughs) wants to show up on his wedding day and his bride not be ready. Lord, you want your bride to be ready. So, Lord, we thank you that you've shown us how to be prepared. Lord, that you've called us to be prepared. God, it also strikes me that um, being prepared includes the gift of being ready. Lord, but that being prepared is such a good place to be lord it comes with joy and fellowship it comes with living in your peace and living in your presence god your oil your spirit is so good to us so lord we pray as we go through this week would you show us the status of our jars lord would you stir holy hunger in us to have full jars Lord, would you wake up the sleepers? Would you invite us and call us to be those who are ready? Lord, and would you make clear to each one of us what full jars, what readiness and what preparedness looks like in each of our lives? For your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.